Usually I just have water up here, but today I have this cup of mate too. A decade or two ago, um, numerous denominational bodies chose to remove the gospel song Onward Christian Soldiers from their hymnals, reasoning it was too militaristic and stood in opposition to the peace of Christ. Well, I see their point. I think they were wrong. It's true that we don't need to encourage people to fight and kill each other. They do a good enough job of that already. We certainly don't want to spur them on. But that's not the whole story. The world is at war. And individual souls are at war. You'll never understand the Bible until you understand that. We're living in occupied territory. And if you can accept it, even our personal lives have been occupied, which is why St. Paul wrote... I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Tracy, that's the first slide. I, I'm skipping a lot here, so catch up. In, in my flesh dwells no good thing. We need Christian soldiers. We need to be Christian soldiers to battle against sin and hatred and injustice and pride, especially in ourselves. But we don't fight this war with the kind of weapons that kill and maim. St. Paul again, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Christ, he's the key. I told you at the beginning of this series, we're part of an ongoing story. You're part of a story. And it's vital for us to understand what kind of story it is. We've seen now over the weeks and months, it's a story about kings and kingdoms. The story of a king who saves his kingdom and marries his beautiful bride. It's Jesus' story. He's the king. The world is his kingdom. The church is his bride. Now, you might be thinking, if the world is his kingdom, he's not doing a very good job of running it. But don't forget that for the time being, the world is under foreign occupation Not because the king failed in his duty, but because his subjects rejected his rule and turned to other powers to provide for life and security. A few weeks ago, we talked about Herod the Great. Herod, who was the king of Israel when Jesus was born. Let me remind you of some of that. Herod was appointed governor of Galilee when he was just 25 years old. Later, because of his military prowess in the Roman Wars, he was rewarded with the title King of the Jews. In 37 BC, he went to Rome to receive his crown from the Roman Senate and the Emperor Octavian. His coronation took place there in Rome. Everyone knew the story. It was not unique to Herod. The vassal kings of the nations all around Israel had done the same kind of thing. They went to the seat of power to receive a kingdom, and it was conferred on them. Now, this is what I want us to see. After Jesus' resurrection, he did the same kind of thing. He went to the seat of power in heaven to be crowned king. His coronation happened there. In theological parlance, his return to heaven and his coronation as king of the earth is called the ascension. 
Now think again of Herod. After he was crowned king, he returned to Israel from Rome to take up his rule. And Jesus too will return from heaven to earth to take up his rule. He's promised to do so. But until then, though he's in heaven, he's already been crowned king of earth. That's something the New Testament writers will never let us forget. It was what St. Peter was talking about on the day of Pentecost when he said, for King David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It was of this that St. Paul was thinking when he wrote that God seated him, Jesus, at the right hand of the heavenly, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. The author of Hebrews had Jesus' coronation in mind when he wrote that God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then there's this from the first letter of Peter. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It's what the great hymn of the early church is about. God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Earth's king is Jesus, and for the time being, our king is in heaven. So what's he doing there when the battle's here? Why not return immediately from heaven to end the war and bring justice and peace? I think there are various answers to that question. I'm just going to offer you one. Had he done so, you and I would not have the chance to join him and serve in his kingdom. St. Peter explained, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Though Jesus has been crowned king at the right hand of the throne of God, the spiritual powers of darkness are still ascendant on earth where the church serves King Jesus as the underground, the counterinsurgency, the resistance. The early church understood their mission. They were deployed on earth to make preparations for the king's return. In them, the kingdom of heaven was already present on earth, but it wouldn't be fully realized until the king himself returned. When the New Testament was being written, the Roman Empire stretched from Western Europe all the way from England to Central Asia. It was comprised of many countries, territories, prefectures, and there were many kings and many lords, but Caesar was the king of those kings, and he was the lord of those lords. He reigned supreme, and people had to make a yearly confession of that fact by affirming that Caesar was their lord. The early Christians decided they couldn't do that. In good conscience, they couldn't say that. They acknowledged Caesar as lord of the empire, but they confessed Jesus alone as lord of the earth. And that cost some of them their jobs, some of them their lives. They understood better than we do that they were living in two kingdoms at the same time. They lived in two kingdoms, but they served one king. And they were preparing for him to return. 
many of the Bible passages that deal with that return, what we call the second coming of Christ, are filled with kingdom terminology, with the language of conflict and war and victory. Consider this, which almost no one reads from a kingdom perspective, but everyone should. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There is kingdom written all over that passage. Or this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. Or this, he has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He came the first time to bear sin, the author of Hebrews tells us. He'll come the second time to bring salvation. That's kingdom language. His first coming was in secret. His second coming will be the ultimate campaign of shock and awe. He will end earth's long war with a word. We must learn, if we're going to read the scriptures and see them with fresh eyes, we must learn to see Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return to earth as part of the larger kingdom story and our lives here on occupied earth as part of that same story. Our role is to prepare the way for the coming of the king. We may even, as St. Peter put it, speed the coming of the day of God. But how are we to do that? What are we to be doing as we await the coming of the king? For that, we go to one of the more familiar passages in the Bible. Before he was crucified or even arrested, Jesus gave orders to the leaders of the resistance, whom we know as the apostles, to meet him on a certain mountain in Galilee. After the resurrection, he reminded them of that, and they went there, probably with others of his followers, though we can't be certain of that, to meet Jesus. We pick up the story, Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Let me read it to you. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, <clears throat> to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, after months of this, that we've become attuned, hopefully, to kingdom language, can you hear it in this passage, what's known as the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's kingdom talk. Or more specifically, that's the king talking. The order he's about to give is issued upon his authority as the supreme leader of God's kingdom. Notice verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, it's because he's king, possessing authority, that he orders his senior officers to go and do this thing, make disciples. The Great Commission launches the great campaign 
in which the followers of King Jesus go about undermining the kingdoms of the world and preparing for the return of the legitimate king. They don't do that by armed rebellion or by political activism. Sometimes we get confused about this. But by recruiting and training new members of the resistance. That is, new citizens of the kingdom of God. Therefore, go and make disciples. Make disciples is a single word in the original language. The meaning of which can be difficult for us to grasp. For one thing, in English, the word disciple is not used outside of a religious context. Have you ever heard someone use the word disciple outside of some religious thought? We think of a disciple as someone who learns to perform certain religious duties like praying or evangelizing or learns to react to others in religiously conditioned ways with patience and goodwill. Whatever else a disciple is, we know he's religious. But Jesus wasn't telling his band of leaders to make religious people. He was telling them to recruit and train people to be his followers, to make Jesus' people out of them. Interestingly, of the four times the word translated make disciples is used in the New Testament, three of them come in the context of related to the kingdom of God. That fourth time in Matthew 27 doesn't contain any kingdom language. But surprise, the parallel passage in Luke, in that passage, the phrase kingdom of God is front and center. Making disciples is kingdom work. Jesus' disciples live as operatives for the kingdom of God. You, if you're a disciple of Jesus, are a kingdom operative. Jesus tells his leadership band to go and make these kinds of disciples. Now, there are two major components in that. First, they are to baptize recruits in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Some people think of baptism as a ritual prerequisite for getting into heaven. But it would be more true, though admittedly still incomplete, it would be more true to think of it as an identification marker of God's kingdom operatives, these people who've been baptized. They're dangerous. We baptize in water, which is how Jesus was baptized and how his followers baptized others. But it's important to understand that water baptism signifies a larger spiritual reality. The word baptize, it only means to immerse something. To do that in the name, or into the name, as the Greek could be translated, into the name of the triune God, is to immerse recruits in God, his life, his character, in the reality of who he is. Jesus wanted his apostles to teach people how to live their lives in God's presence, just as he had taught them. A baptized person eventually comes out of the water, but he or she never comes out of the God-bathed life. Jesus wanted these leaders to bring people, their work, their play, their family, their relationships, their leisure, their trouble, everything into the environment of God's life and presence. A fish lives its life surrounded by water. A person baptized into the name of God lives his or her life surrounded by God. There is nothing in a Jesus follower's life of which he can say or she can say, 
This doesn't have anything to do with God. Everything has to do with God. For kingdom people, everything has to do with God. This is very different from religion as popularly conceived. The disciples, the recruits, the apprentices, whatever you want to call them, were to learn how to live in and count on God's presence at work, at home, with others, when alone, in sickness and health, all the time. They were to be kingdom people at all times and in every place. Outside this reality of the presence of God, the constant presence of God, there is no discipleship to Jesus. That's the first of the two major components that go into making disciples. The second is to teach people to keep or to obey everything Jesus commanded. Jesus expected his leaders, the foundation of his church, to do more than teach people his commands. That'd be easy. But people need more than that to succeed as Jesus' followers. They were to teach them to obey his commands. Literally, all things, whatever I have commanded you. There's a world of difference between teaching people all the commands that Jesus gave and teaching them to keep all the commands he gave. It's the difference between religion and reality, between frustration and joy, between suffocating in the pollution of the world and breathing in the life-giving presence of God. The purpose behind the Great Commission is not to teach people religion. Jesus had more in mind than a catechism class. It's even more than teaching biblical doctrine, however important that may be. It's teaching people to live as Jesus' operatives while they wait for their king to return and establish his kingdom in its fullness. The life Jesus had in mind for us is not the same thing as living the American dream. Nor is it the same thing as living as a church member in good standing. Obeying all things whatsoever Jesus commanded is radically countercultural. It's subversive even, which is why that great kingdom ambassador Paul, while recruiting and training people in Greece for the kingdom, was accused of turning the world upside down and of defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Let me ask you a simple question. Can you honestly say it's your intention to obey the commands that Jesus gave? You say, absolutely, I have intended to do that. That is my intention. Do you know what they are? Can you list even three of them that you right now are intent on obeying? If not, there's something wrong. Disciples of Jesus are characterized here by two things. Immersion in the reality of God. They live their lives with him all the time. And obedience to Jesus' commands. It's hard to overstate this. We've made the Great Commission about evangelism in the 20th century American idea of the word about witnessing programs, about getting people into heaven, about theological education, but not about training people to live Jesus' way in the kingdom of God. 
which is what he had in mind. But when people actually do the things Jesus taught them, their lives get better, more peaceful, but also more exciting, more enjoyable. Their relationships grow deeper and richer. Their sense of purpose comes into focus, sometimes for the very first time in their lives. They grow to hate their sins, but to love their lives. Those people, the church of Jesus Christ, become a magnet to the disaffected men and women of the world, disillusioned by its promises and deceits and looking for something real. The Great Commission was never really about getting more people into heaven, though it will certainly have that effect. It's about getting heaven into more people as they live as Jesus' trainees in the kingdom of God. Now let me close with a reminder and a suggestion. The reminder is this. The way into the kingdom is through faith in King Jesus who died on the cross so that you could be pardoned, granted amnesty, and citizenship in the kingdom of God. Entrance will not be granted to you because you've done certain good deeds or performed certain religious rituals. It doesn't work that way. Getting in touch with your spiritual side will not qualify you for a kingdom green card. Citizenship is granted on the basis of faith in the king, in Lord Jesus. It's granted to those who cast their lot in with him. That's the reminder. The suggestion is this. If you have confidence in Jesus, it only makes sense to do what he's told you to do. It's amazing to me how our minds can just be totally divided. We have confidence in Jesus, but that's over in the religious side of my life. The rest of my life, I'm going to live the way I think I should live it. That's not very, doesn't demonstrate much confidence in Jesus. Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. We can trust what he told us to do. If you don't know what he told us to do, then here's my recommendation. Find out what he said. Here's my suggestion. Read the book of Matthew with pencil and paper in hand. Every time you come to some command of Jesus, write it down. Now, some of them, you're going to say, I've had several books of the commands of Jesus. Um, Not all that helpful to me, frankly. Um, Some of them include things like go into the village near you and get a donkey and a colt and untie it and bring it to me. You're not going to find much application for yourself in that. If you do, you may want to check with me before you act on it because we're not sure about that one. But when you come to a command of Jesus, write it down. Ask God to help you understand what Jesus means, what he wants, and how to act on it in the context of your life. Okay? Pen and paper, Gospel of Matthew, write down commands. Ask the Lord, what do you mean by this? And how do I act on it in my life? If you can find someone else who's serious about obeying Jesus' commands, do that together. In fact, you can start a small group of Jesus' people living the adventure of the kingdom together, serving together under the banner of the king. Let's pray.
God, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We don't want to just read over scripture again and again and bring our thoughts to bear on it and not hear what you're saying to us. Lord, I pray that you'll open up to us, to all of us, not just when we meet here, but when we're alone at home with you. Open up your word to us in rich ways, exciting ways that change us, that challenge us, that cause us to know you and to be good servants of our King, Jesus, in whose name we pray.